If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we have uh, this Sunday and then next Sunday, and we'll, we'll finish out the uh, second chapter here of Acts. Acts 2, and we'll look at verses 37 through 41 this afternoon. I was struggling to come up with an introduction, and I'm still struggling to come up with an introduction, I guess. So um, answer this question in your mind. Have you ever had a, a, a significant and profound change of mind or change of heart about something? Something where you felt one way about it and you completely changed. As I thought about this related to the gospel, I thought about Paul is probably one of the greatest examples of that. A man who was literally on a road heading to persecute Christians and was knocked off his horse and completely changed his mind about who Jesus was. And in some ways, that's what our, our text in Acts 2 is about. It, it answers the question that having heard the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done, how do we respond? What do we do when we hear this message about who Jesus is? And what I've sort of landed on as a big idea for Acts 37 or Acts 2, 37 to 41 is this. The gospel demands a drastic and radical response. The gospel demands or requires a drastic and radical response. We're going to consider some familiar words, words like repentance and faith and regeneration and baptism. But my hope is that we realize just how radical and drastic those things are. They become very commonplace to us. And we think, well, you respond to the gospel by repenting and believing. Do we realize what that means and how much of a change that is for our sinful hearts? When we hear the gospel, the gospel demands a drastic and radical response. Let's read Acts 2, verses 37 through 41. After Peter had preached, Luke says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The gospel demands a drastic and radical response. We're going to think about this passage in three points. I'll just give them to you at the beginning, and I'll try to repeat them well throughout. But they are regeneration. That's the first big idea we'll talk about. Then we'll talk about repentance and faith. 
and then we'll talk about results. Regeneration, repentance and faith, results. And again, we're trying to answer this question, having heard the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done, how do we respond? And the gospel demands a drastic and radical response. So as we think about this, how are we supposed to respond? We, what, what are we supposed to do? What response does the gospel demand? We, should, we, should, we, we can begin by saying that asking this question is in fact a revelation that God's spirit is at work in our hearts. If we are asking the question, what do we do in response to the gospel? It means that something is happening, that the work of regeneration has begun. And so that's the first thing I want us to think about is regeneration. That's a long word. Regeneration, not one we use very often. It's akin to born again. Um, Our passage begins with this phrase. Now, when they heard this, so let's remember what the, the this is. What did they heard? So think about what Peter had just said to the those that were listening. He had explained who Jesus was and who Jesus is. That he was attested and proven by many signs and miracles and wonders. But those who were gathered that day and those who knew him had rejected him as the Messiah and instead chose to crucify him. But we're also told that this crucifixion was all according to God's predetermined plan. And not only was the crucifixion according to God's plan, but so was the resurrection. And so Jesus was raised up from the dead. And after 40 days of appearing to and speaking with his disciples, he was exalted to the Father's right hand. And having been exalted, he has sent the Holy Spirit, which is what was witnessed that day on Pentecost. All of this was foretold by the prophets. All of it was witnessed that day by the apostles And it affirms that God has made something very clear. God has made it very clear what he thinks about who Jesus is. And that's how Peter ends, that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. He has exalted Jesus as king and declared him to be the savior of the world. So having exalted Jesus and evidenced this identity through the Old Testament scriptures, through the witness of the apostles and others, Peter ends this sermon by saying to the crowd, you crucified him. You see that at the end, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, if I'm preaching that sermon, I probably put a period there. But then Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's a bold statement. He says, you have crucified him. You have killed your Messiah. You have murdered the Lord. You can almost see his finger pointing at the crowd. You crucified him. What an amazing spirit-empowered boldness for him to say without hesitation, without any hedging, that those gathered were responsible for the death of the Messiah. He knew what they could do, and still he boldly said it. Now let's think about this, because the natural human sinful response to having our sin pointed out, especially if someone points it out as boldly as Peter did here, The natural response is to deny it or to justify it. That's what we all do when someone points out our sin. So, kids, this applies to you as much as it does to us as adults. Kids, maybe your parents point out that you have done something wrong. They say that you didn't clean up your toys, or you tracked mud into the house, or you didn't put your bike away. And in that moment, rising in your heart is the desire to say, no, that's not right. 
I didn't do that. I didn't do anything wrong. Or you come up with a reason why it was okay for you to do what you did. You make an excuse. You argue that you that you weren't wrong. Of course, I'm not just picking on you kids because we as adults are are no different. When it's pointed out that we've done something wrong, whether it's at work or at home, we want to deny it. We want to say, well, that wasn't me. Or we want to search for excuses. We want to justify what we've done. Oh, everybody does that. Or it's not as big a deal as you're making it. So to be confronted with our sins, to be confronted with our shortcomings, and to respond without denying them and without self-justification, but by saying, you're right, that's right, I was wrong. That is a moment of profound grace. The response of the crowd here is a miracle. They don't reject Peter's message. Verse 41 says that they they received his word. They, They received it. They listened when Peter said, you crucified Jesus. This is evidence of the work of the Spirit in regeneration, in making dead people alive. This response was not something that Peter necessarily assumed would happen. And later in Acts, there are many who are confronted with their sin, and they respond with rejection and anger rather than this. You think about Stephen. Stephen is just as bold. He makes an equally bold charge. The people there don't ask him questions. They stone him because of what he said. But here, this crowd, they respond in humility. They want to know what they can do to make things right. What brings about that kind of miracle? Why does the crowd react this way? I think it's because of the unseen power of the truth of God communicated in the power of the Spirit and applied to their hearts by the Holy Spirit. We see that those in the crowd, they obviously heard Peter's words with their ears, but what else does the text tell us? It tells us that they were cut to the heart. They were deeply convicted. Hebrews tells us that the word of God is a two-edged sword that can pierce our souls. And that's what happens here. We see it firsthand. Their consciences are pricked. And rather than resist that pain, they see God's hand and they see their need to respond. They don't ignore that prick, but they dig down deep and say, now why is this so painful? This is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing when you take a step back and think about how those gathered had suppressed the truth for so long. They had denied Jesus' power. They, they had personally seen his miracles. They had seen him speak, and they had rejected him. These men and women actually stand as a, an argument against people in our day who say, well, if I had been there when he was alive, I'd believe. Or if he would just show up now, then I would believe. Here's a whole group of people gathered in Jerusalem who were there, who witnessed the miracles, and who rejected him. They rejected him until now. And it's not that Peter was a better preacher than Jesus. Nobody's going to say that, okay? Peter was not a better preacher than Jesus. But it's rather that the Spirit comes in power at that moment, and these folks are born again. They're awakened to see their need and to see, the, to see their sin, to see their need of a Savior, and to see that Jesus is that Savior. Why now? John 3, the Spirit blows where it wishes, and nobody knows where it comes from or where it's going. Imagine what it would mean 
for these Jewish men and women to not deny the sin of crucifying their Messiah and Lord, but instead to say, what shall we do? Because in that question, there is an admission of guilt and an acceptance of the truth that Peter has proclaimed. They're not arguing with Peter. They don't deny what Peter says, and they don't make any excuses about what Peter says. No, they, in fact, are awakened to the reality of their sin and to their need for forgiveness. They own the fact that they have killed their Lord and their Christ. We did it. Peter's sermon clearly reveals who Jesus was and is, but it also reveals the sin of those he is preaching to. And that's what God's Spirit always does. When God's Spirit invades our life, He is a Holy Spirit, and He exposes sin. Jesus promised that He would do that. John 16, 8-10, He's speaking of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus says, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Sounds like Pentecost, doesn't it? Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit does that, that, did that that day, and the Spirit does the same work within all who believe. He awakens us to our sin to how we have rebelled against God, how we have rejected Jesus. And he reveals Jesus as our Savior and as our King. You know, we may have not been there to crucify Jesus, but we have lived our lives without reference to him. And in that way, we have rejected him. And when we see the depth of our sin, we ask, like the crowd, is there any hope? If, if we see our sin, then the response is, is there hope? Can I be forgiven? That's what they say to Peter. They see their sin and they say, what do we need to do, Peter? Can we do anything? Can, is there any hope for us, Peter? Responding rightly to the good news of the gospel begins when we see the reality of our sin, when we stop denying our guilt and we stop making excuses about our rebellion against God. And this is the work of God's Spirit in us. It's when the grace of God through the Spirit opens our hearts to see the seriousness of sin. Now, if you're a Christ, this happened, if you're, if you're a Christian, this happened when you first responded to the good news about Jesus. You were awakened to see your sin. But the Christian life is a continual life of repentance and faith. And this happens throughout our lives. God in His grace pierces our hearts. He cuts us to the heart, by the Word, through the Spirit, to help us see the depth of our sin against Him and to help us see that He is our Savior and our Lord and He is the one we must follow. We must always be looking for this, the work of the Spirit in our hearts. So when that happens, when we are pricked with our sin, we say, is there anything we can do? Can this crowd recover from having crucified their Lord and Savior? Peter's response to their question says that there is hope. There is hope for all sinners, and it's found through repentance and faith. So we've seen regeneration. Now let's talk about repentance and faith. Verse 37 again, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter responds. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. With that question, what shall we do? Those gathering are asking Peter not just how can we be forgiven, but also how can we be a part of what's happening? They've seen their, their sin. They know that they need to be forgiven, but they also know that this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament's promised final days. And if they're witnessing the pouring out of the Spirit, they say they want to be a part of that. They miss Jesus in his arrival, but they don't want to miss the pouring out of his power. They want to be a part of God's work in their day. Now, for all of us, in answering their question, what shall we do? Peter is answering the question for us, what should we do? He's in some ways saying, how do I become a Christian? How can I be forgiven? How can I be welcomed as a member of God's family? How can I be a part of what God is doing in the world? How can I be on God's side, on his team, in his family? And the answer he gives is repent and be baptized. Let's consider those two things. First then, what is repentance? Repentance is not simply sorrow over what they have done. They are obviously, they they feel bad. They feel terrible. They are crushed by what they have just done. They have crucified Christ. But repentance is more than just sorrow over sin. I invite you to read 2 Corinthians 7, and you'll understand that more. 2 Corinthians 7 on repentance. But repentance is a complete change of mind and heart. Repentance is a complete change of mind and heart, heart, specifically with regard to what we think and believe about who God is and what he has done through Jesus Christ. Repentance is a complete change of mind and heart, specifically with regard to what we think and believe about who God is and what he's done through Jesus. It's a 180 degree turn. Let's imagine that you're on the edge of the Ohio River and you're watching it flow eventually down to where it's going to meet the Mississippi River. Maybe you're on the Big Four Bridge and you're standing and you're watching it flow down or you're just on the banks and you're watching the river flow. And imagine if in an instant the flow of that river just shifted and started heading back towards Cincinnati. That would be a radical change, wouldn't it? That is what repentance is. And it's that drastic. It's a complete change of direction. Up to this point, those hearing Peter had rejected Jesus as their Lord in Christ, all the way to the point of crucifying him. But now Peter's saying, repent, turn. He's telling them to completely change their minds and their hearts about who Jesus was and is. He wants them to see the sin of rejecting Christ and of sinning against God and to instead turn from that path and to trust in Christ. Now, right alongside repentance, it's right to say that Peter is also calling people to faith. So I'm talking about repentance and faith, but you don't see him say repent and believe or repent and trust Christ or repent and have faith. That's not there, right? It says repent and be baptized. Nothing about faith there. But to, but I think Peter is saying to trust in Jesus for salvation, to trust that he is the only one that can bring forgiveness. And while he doesn't use those words, we can assume that Peter has faith in mind along with repentance because repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. Because if you are walking one direction and you decide to completely turn around, you are going to start walking in a different direction. You're going to have this this 
total change of mind, and you're going to not be turning just to, to nothing. You're going to be turning to something. You're turning to trust in something or someone else. If you're walking down the street in one direction, and you decide to turn around and walk in the opposite direction, you still have a destination. You're still headed in some sort of positive direction. It's just a completely different direction. And this is the kind of change that Peter is calling his listeners to. A change of mind and heart about sin and about the person of of Jesus Christ. This call to repent goes to everyone. And while we may not be those who who have crucified Jesus, we have to recognize that our hearts, apart from God's grace, have chosen to reject Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's our natural response. We assume that we don't need a Savior. And we have chosen to place ourselves on the throne of our lives rather than King Jesus. And because of that, we make a mess of our lives. And we make a mess of God's good world. And so we have to repent. We have to turn from our pride and our sin and our self and our, and our, and our self-centeredness and our rejection of Jesus. And we have to believe. We have to trust in Christ for forgiveness of our sins. We have to submit to him as our Lord. We have to trust that he has paid the penalty for our sin through his death and he offers us new life through his resurrection. Repentance and faith is how we are saved. It's how we're saved from this crooked generation. That's what he says in verse 40. He was witnessing and exhorting them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. We could take that reference to be many different things, but at a minimum, it identifies that generation as, as unbelieving this is what Jesus says in Matthew seventeen seventeen. He calls his hearers a faithless generation. He says, you are a faithless, unbelieving generation. And Peter says, you need to be saved from this generation, saved from those who reject Jesus as Lord. You need to turn from the path of this generation that is persisting in unbelief. You need to turn away from this generation that disagrees with God's verdict about who Jesus is. A calls the same today to turn away from this crooked, unbelieving, Jesus-denying generation. That's always the call of the gospel. Turn away from a generation that persists in unbelief and rejects Jesus as Lord. And so we have to agree with God about who Jesus is. That's what part of what repentance and faith is. We have to agree that Jesus is Lord in Christ, that he is our king, that he is our savior, that he alone brings forgiveness and now he takes control of our lives. As often has been said, we, when we come to faith in Christ, we're like a business that's been bought by Jesus. And we come to him, and if we're this business, then the, the new owner puts a sign out front that says, under new management. Have you ever heard this idea? That's what we are as Christians. We were under our own management. We were ruling our own lives. And now we have... Jesus has bought us, and we are under new management. He is Lord. He is King. The crowd says, what shall we do? And what should they do? They have to repent, which involves belief. But Peter also says that they need to be baptized. Now, here is where the controversy comes in, at least for us in this day and age. No one there seemed to take any issue with that. But we today ask the question, is Peter saying that we need to be baptized to be saved, that baptism is required for forgiveness. Of course, there are those who do say that, whether it's infant baptism or believer's baptism. They say that you need to be baptized in order to be a Christian, in order to know 
forgiveness. Before we get into the discussion, I want to be crystal clear from the get-go that we as a church, and even if the church ever denies it, me personally, I want to say without hesitation, no, that that is not what Peter is saying. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. You do not have to be baptized in order to be forgiven. Now, how can I say that when you read, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Am I twisting what the scriptures say? Let me give you two reasons why we can say that baptism is not necessary for salvation. One that has to do with what the rest of the Bible says, and the other that has to do with what these words meant for those who originally heard Peter. So if you've done our Fellowship of the Word stuff, we're going to do some biblical theology, and then we're going to do some traveling instructions. The biblical theology is seeing the big picture of Scripture, and the traveling instructions is saying, what did this mean for those who first heard it? Okay. So first, regarding biblical theology, conversion, turning to Christ, is spoken of in different ways in the New Testament. There's different words that are used to talk about what it means to become a Christian, to be converted. I read a very helpful article by a guy named Robert Stein. Um, I have a few copies of it if you want to dig a little deeper. Um, And he identifies five related aspects of conversion, of becoming a Christian. When the Bible talks about what it means to convert, to become a Christian, it uses five different ideas. Here's what they are. Repentance, faith, confession, fourth, regeneration or the giving of the Holy Spirit, and fifth, baptism by representatives of the Christian community. So those first three, repentance, faith, confession, these are all done by the individual. The individual repents, the individual has faith, believes, and confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the last two are done to them. They are regenerated, they are given the Holy Spirit by God, and they are baptized by members of a Christian community. All five of these components in the New Testament are used interchangeably to speak about how a person becomes a Christian. Sometimes they're combined in different ways. Sometimes there's one of them. Sometimes there's two of them. Sometimes there's three of them. But it talks about how a person becomes a Christian, how they become a follower of Jesus. In fact, Peter alone talks about different ways about how you become a Christian. Earlier in this sermon, in in verse 21, he said from Joel that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In the, in the next chapter, in, in Acts 3.19, we're going to see that all he says is, he says, repent and turn back, with no mention of baptism. And uh, when he talks to, uh, speaks of Jesus to the house of Cornelius in Acts 10.43, he says, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's it, just belief, just faith. When he's talking to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, he says of the Gentiles that God cleansed their hearts by faith. No repentance mentioned, no baptism mentioned, no regeneration mentioned. Uh, And that's just Peter. He's using lots of different ways. Romans 10 says that conversion comes when we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Paul tells the Philippian jailer, 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. In fact, I think we can say that the core response is in those words, repent and believe. But there's all these different ways that it's talked about how you become a Christian. Now, that's a very brief overview. But I'm confident in saying that Scripture speaks about coming to salvation in various ways. And baptism is never in those ways presented as necessary and salvific. Now, having said that, the second thing I want to say is that baptism is never separated from conversion in the New Testament. Baptism is not separated from becoming a Christian in the New Testament. The fact that we are asking this question would seem totally strange to someone in the first century. The way that we talk about communion, and I say, you need to have trusted in Christ for salvation And you also need to have been baptized as a believer. No one in the first century said that. There was no, they they would say, that's ridiculous. What do do you mean that someone could trust in Jesus and not be baptized? That's the strangest thing I've ever heard. To be a Christian was to be baptized. So why does Peter say what he says in response to the crowd's question? You need to repent and be baptized. It's because baptism was so closely associated with conversion that the thought of an unbaptized follower of Jesus was completely foreign. Because it was so closely tied to becoming a Christian, baptism could actually be spoken of as a way to become a Christian. Again, that's not to say that baptism is required to become a Christian, any more than it's right to say that you're required to have wedding rings to be married. Even though you could say putting on rings is a way to describe getting married. Robert Stein in that article draws a great illustration from this. He says, if I were asked when I was married, I could respond when I said I do, or when I put a ring on her finger and she put one on mine, or when the pastor pronounced us man and wife, or when the witnesses and pastor signed the marriage certificate, or when we sexually consummated our marriage. If asked as to exactly which one of these caused me to become married, I would reply, you cannot separate them. They were all part of my becoming Married. When I mentioned any one of these, I assumed the others. Baptism was assumed of all Christians. That that was just what everyone who came to faith did. They were baptized, and most often, immediately. The key here is baptism in Jesus' name, because baptism was a way of radically identifying with Jesus, of declaring to all that you believe that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Think about how poignant it would be for the people on the day of Pentecost to be baptized. It would say to everyone and to their own hearts, they would be saying, we were wrong. We were were wrong about, about who Jesus is. And now I'm being baptized by these apostles that I made fun of. And I'm being baptized in the name of Jesus, who weeks before I said he needed to be crucified. I am repenting of my sin and my rejection of Jesus, and I am believing in him for salvation. The baptism didn't save them, but it revealed the repentance and the faith in Jesus that was in their heart. And we too believe that that baptism after confessing Jesus as Lord is a wonderful and beautiful outward sign of what has happened inwardly in our hearts. Can we ever get back to that linking of baptism with salvation so closely 
I don't know. We've got so much baggage tied to what baptism is and when it needs to happen and, and what it looks like. But baptism is a beautiful thing. It expresses so many different things. It talks about our union with Christ, how we are united with Him in, in His burial, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. It says that, that we have died with Christ. We have been raised to new life. Our hope of salvation is that because Jesus has died, we can be forgiven. And because Jesus has risen, we can walk with him. That's what baptism announces to the world and announces to our hearts. I think in this context, water baptism also reminds us of the baptism in the Spirit. That faith and repentance lead to the filling of and the indwelling of the Spirit, as has just been witnessed. And that is true for all who trust in Christ, that we are baptized into the Spirit. Is baptism necessary for salvation? No, not as, a, not as a work. Certainly not. There is no good work that earns us salvation. It's by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. No, it's not. But is it commanded by Jesus? Yes. It's one of the last things he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is it assumed that everyone who repents and believes will be baptized in Jesus' name? Yes. Yes, it is. Everyone. The sad thing about the controversy that, that surrounds something like this is that it is distracted from the beauty of what baptism is and of the great significance of it. And we're so concerned about the ins and outs. So I would ask, have you been baptized in Jesus' name? If you have come to believe that Jesus is Lord and Christ, if you have turned from your sins, if you are trusting in Jesus alone as Savior, if you want to walk with Christ, then you should be baptized. Easter is two Sundays away. Easter is traditionally the day when people were baptized. In some traditions, that's the only day anyone is baptized is Easter. Wouldn't that be a great day to be baptized if you haven't? I'd love to talk to you about it if you have not been baptized. But it's what Jesus commands, and it's what every follower of Christ does. It's the first step of obedience. So, as we think about how we respond to the gospel, we see evidence of the regeneration of the work of the Spirit in verse 37. Then Peter calls the crowd to repentance and faith, and along with that repentance and faith, is the call to be baptized as evidence of that. And now just a few results as we close. Results. I'll do these very quickly, just three. What happened the day that day and what happens today when people repent and believe in Jesus? What are the results? When you repent and you believe in Christ, what results first is forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Brothers, what shall we do? Is there any hope for us, Peter? Is there any hope for people who have murdered Jesus? Peter says, yes, even you who murdered the Messiah, if you repent and you believe, then you will be forgiven. You see that repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter doesn't say to them, you can't do anything. It's too late. There's no hope for you. And Jesus doesn't say that to anyone. 
And, and the gospel isn't something that's just for this 120 people. The gospel is something that is open to all who will repent and believe. Look at verse 39. For the promises for you, not just you, but for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And God is calling his children home. He's, he's calling people from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. He's calling people from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. He's calling old and young men and women, slave and free. Anyone who believes and repents can know forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Open to all. So forgiveness is a result. Second, the filling of the Spirit is the result. What happens when you repent and believe? You're forgiven of sins and you're filled with the Spirit. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What they have witnessed is not just for those 120, but it is available to everyone who will believe. It's not just for the elite. It's not just for, for certain people. But it's for all people because we in Christ are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. We all now know the status that, that we are prophets. And the coming of the Spirit comes and is poured out. And the Spirit is poured out in an unhindered and indiscriminate way. That's how he comes to us. So repent and believe brings forgiveness of sins, the filling with the Spirit, and finally the forming of a new people. The forming of a new people. The forming of the church is happening here. Those who believe and reject this crooked generation say, we are not an unbelieving generation. We are a generation who believes. We are a new generation, a new people that's being formed. And we're told here that 3,000 souls, I love that it uses the word souls, 3,000 souls were added to their number. So we're up to 3,000 121 or 120 I don't maybe maybe 21 I don't know <laughs> that was not an inspired thought 3120 and so now what we've got this new people what are they going to look like what's this new generation going to look like that's what we'll see next week we start to see what the church looks like what's this new Jesus trusting repenting, believing people look like? How will they live in this world? How will they be different from the crooked, unbelieving generation? How are we going to be different? That's what we'll see next week. But this week, hopefully we see that the gospel demands a drastic and radical response. Becoming a Christian is a complete change of direction in life. It's to agree with God about who Jesus is. It's to be washed and cleansed in Jesus' name. It's to be united to Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. It's to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. It's to become a part of God's family throughout all generations. It's to be adopted and to be redeemed. And all of that happens when we repent and believe. Have you repented of sins and trusted in Christ for salvation? If not, then today is the day of salvation. And if you have, have you been baptized? It's God's first command to us, and it identifies us with him in a clear and decisive way. As I said at the beginning, too, I'm struck by the great shift, the great change that happens in those of us who come to Jesus. Are you someone who has put their faith and trust in Christ? If so, 
are you and I, are we living like someone who has made a drastic and radical response to Jesus? Are we living as someone for whom Jesus is Savior and Lord? People say, are you a Christian? And we say, yeah. Have you been baptized? Mm-hmm, I've been baptized. We take it so lightly what this change that has happened in us, and some of that is just the culture that we've, we've lived in. The culture is very influenced by Christianity. And so the, the break doesn't feel so strong, but it is a, a 180-degree turn. It is the Ohio River flowing backwards. That's what has happened in our lives because the natural flow of our lives, apart from the work of God's Spirit and the grace of God, we would continue to go in that direction. But God has changed us, and He continues to do that. And if that's true, are we announcing this good news with boldness like Peter? Are we calling people to repent of sin, to repent of rejecting Christ, to find forgiveness, to find life, to find deep community and love through him?